Amen. How well do you know him? It's my title for us this morning. How well do you know him? Personally, I believe that there's a strong connection, a positive correlation between how well we know God and the health of our faith. In other words, I believe that how you and I face challenges and difficulties, how we navigate our week, how we accept trials, and how we endeavor to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is inseparably tied to how well we know him. The greater we know him, the stronger our faith is. And incidentally, the stronger our faith is, the greater we know him. And as it is in life, so it is in faith. How well we know someone is connected to how well we know certain things about them. For example, I know Daimi pretty well. But that's another story. My life is intimately connected to Daimi's. In a thousand ways. And her life is intimately connected to mine. In a thousand and one. We know each other well. Not because we only know general things, but specific things about our personalities and our moods and our emotions and our qualities and our characteristics. My question is, how well do you know him? My plan this morning is simple. In view of this fact, namely that our faith in God is connected to our knowledge of him, I want to ask you two simple questions. Do you know how he loves? And do you know how he gives? Let's begin this morning with the first of the two questions. Do you know how he loves? Let me read this text again with you. It says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because, help me out, thank you. Let me ask you, do you know how he loves? We often hear references to Psalm 136 verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord because he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Or John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Or 1 John 4.8, which we just read, God is love. We often hear references to this, but you, do you know how he loves? I know what the Bible says. Do you know how he loves? I'm not asking if you can deliver a scholastic paper or an academic treatise on the love of God. I'm asking you something far deeper, something far more pressing. I'm asking you if you can tell me personally what the love of God is like. I'm asking you if you know in your heart and not just your mind what the love of God is like. Church, we have gaps between our understanding and our experience. 
And I blame that on a couple of things. One, we're often afraid to surrender our own lives to him and thereby forfeit the experiences that other saints pride over. And two, we're often afraid of what the next stage of spiritual growth might entail, as in, I'm pretty good as a Christian, I'll stay here. So let me ask you again, do you know how he loves in the book that we've been studying, the book of 1 John, the theme of love has been introduced again and again. Either John is telling us not to love the world or to love one another or to appreciate the love that the Father has given to us in his only Son, Jesus Christ. But again and again, John says something about the love of God, love that we as Christians should be familiar with. You see, to know the love of God isn't only to have the data and truth compiled neatly into a theological category or to simply quote some verses that have been drilled into our brain from childhood. True, we should know the Bible and theology. The Bible is God's inspired word, amen? And theology is, as C.S. Lewis once said, the queen of all the sciences. But the love of God is also an experienced reality. One that we experience by virtue of God the Holy Spirit. And yes, I say experienced. What's the word? experienced because there is a sense in which our minds can only go so far we can think we can analyze we can be critical we can evaluate and then our cognitive abilities stop our hearts too should have a knowledge of the love of God I think this is what the psalmist meant in Psalm 34, verse 8, when he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste, that's an experiential thing, right? Taste that the Lord is good, experiential. But also see, that's an empirical thing. We can evaluate it scientifically, but we should also taste that the Lord is good and that his love endures forever. It's not just that, well, I read the book and, 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 and it says God is good, so therefore God is good. Yes, that's an aspect of our faith, but there's this other aspect of our faith that is experiential and we play it down to our own demise. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Apostle Paul also affirms this, I believe, this aspect of Christian spiritual reality, when he says that to know the love of Christ is to know something that surpasses knowledge. That's Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. To know the love of Christ is to know something that your mind can't know. I want to ask you a question. How well do you know him? How well do you know him? 
Do you know, and I'm not asking you if you can quote some sources and give me some references, I know the word too. I'm asking you if you know, do you know personally the hand that guides you through the storm? Do you know personally the love that envelops you in the midst of shame and grief and regret because of sin? Do you know the love of a father who says, I will be with you and I will not forsake you? Do you know how he loves? The second thing I want you to ask is, or I want to ask you is this, do you know how he gives? I've already asked you if you know how he loves, and we've covered some of that, but I also want to ask you if you know how he gives. Let's look again at this text. Let's start from chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A word you may recall that means to placate or satisfy wrath of an offended party. Jesus is the one who satisfies God's wrath against us. He propitiates the Father's wrath. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. How many have seen God? No one. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Do you know how he gives? Church, our God is a great giver. The awful tragedy that we so often see stri strike in a consumeristic, materialistic culture such as ours is that we fall in love and we are infatuated with the gifts rather than the giver. God isn't only a giver in the sense that he gives but because our God is good, as the scripture says, and because our God is great, as the scripture says, and because our God is righteous and just and holy, when he gives, he gives those things that we need the most. He gives good gifts. He gives out of the abundance of his sufficiency and out of his grace. So the Apostle James says in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no change. In this case, 1 John chapter 4, God is seen as a giver who sends, or we might say gives, his only son Jesus to us. It says, and I quote, God sent his only son into the world, verse 9 says, so that we might live through him. The second part there of verse 9, 
so that we might live through him is what we would call a purpose clause. John is saying that the reason God gave, the reason God gave Jesus, the reason God sent Jesus was so that we might have eternal life. As one author comments, and I quote, life in the full sense comes to humans through Jesus alone. God gave Jesus so that we might have life. Another commentator says this, without him, we're all dead. That's what he's saying. Without Jesus, there's no life, man. God sent Jesus so that we might have life. John's not talking about popularity. He's not talking about acceptance. He's not talking about financial success. He's talking about eternal life. And of course, verses 12 and 13 teach us that God the Holy Spirit dwells within those who are in Christ. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. It says, no one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, here it is, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. How does that happen? Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Here's the answer. He gave us the Spirit. So much going on here, church. So much going on here. I want to teach you something, but first it's important for me to say this at the outset. So let me know you're listening by saying amen. We believe in one God who has existed from eternity and has been revealed to us in three distinct persons of the same essence. One God, three persons. Three persons, one God. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are never in disagreement. And the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are never in disunity. So, from the decree to the accomplishment of salvation. From the decree to the accomplishment of salvation. The Father wasn't asking permission of the Son. The Son wasn't asking the Spirit's opinion. The Father, Son, and Spirit were in perfect unity and agreement from start to finish. Matthew Barrett, in his book on the Trinity, says this, and I quote, Every operation is from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. There's perfect unity in the Trinity. Nevertheless, in the three distinct persons of the Trinity, we see revealed to us in the Word of God the following roles in salvation. First, God the Father authored salvation. The plan was ordained in history past and unfolded through the covenants and revelations that God made to our forefathers through redemptive history. God authored salvation. Secondly, God the Son accomplished salvation. When the Son came on the scene, God the Son was incarnate. He, in, other, in other words, he took on flesh and dwelt among us 
John chapter 1, verse 14 says, So this is what the son did. He was born. He lived. He died. He was buried. And Paul says he was, rose, he was risen on the third day by the Father in the power of the Spirit. This brings us to our third point. The Father authored salvation. The Son accomplished salvation. And thirdly, the Spirit applies salvation to believing sinners. We are born again, baptized into the body of Christ, and guaranteed eternal life by the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. This is important, church, not only because I want you to see how it's unfolding in 1 John chapter 4, but because without a unified and a agreeing trinity, three separate persons but one essence and therefore one God, we don't have Christianity. We don't have Christianity with a faulty view of the trinity. So we believe from eternity to eternity that God is one, and has revealed himself to us as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are equal and in perfect agreement and harmony at all times. As we look at redemptive history, though, it wasn't the Father that died on the cross. It was the Son incarnate. And it's the Spirit who does the work following the sacrifice of the Son on behalf of sinners like you and me. And so it says, God sent his Son to be the propitiation, and we know it, John says, because his spirit lives within us. In a matter of a few verses, we see the plan of salvation in the Trinity. See, it would be pointless and void to speak of a great love that didn't actually give. A love that was always capable, but never willing a love that always meant to do good, but never actually did good. A love that only wished you well, but never actually did well to you or for you. This is the exact opposite of God's love. God's love is so full that God gives. God delivers and redeems, provides and satisfies. God, the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gives. And when he gives, he gives sufficiently and he gives completely to such a level, to such a degree that we have nothing to do but lift an empty cup and say, Lord, more. I have nothing to offer you. Psalm 116 says, What shall I return to the Lord for his salvation? I know what I shall do. I will lift the cup of redemption. Then I'll say, God, give me more. We have nothing that we can give him, but this is what makes Christianity miles, miles better than any other so-called religion or faith. God satisfies sinners' debts. The greatest issue that we all have as human beings is that we were created in the image and likeness of God, but we're lost. We're sinners. We owe our creator a debt of moral compromise that must be satisfied. 
But in the midst of all this, there's something else that we need to appreciate, and that's this. While we are made in the image and likeness of God, it isn't hardship that's our problem. It isn't inconvenience, and it isn't illness. It isn't even Satan. All of those things get an incredible amount of credit when it comes to what we believe as sinners saved by grace. We love to blame stuff on Satan and cancer and life and the traffic on the palmetto. We love to blame all the problems of our own shortcomings and issues as Christians on anything and everything that we possibly can find to blame it on. But I want you to hear something, church. Satan cannot keep you from heaven, but your sin can. Your cancer will not keep you from glory, but your sin will. Your inconveniences and your preferences and your hardship, none of that matters because none of it can keep you from heaven. But your sin can and your sin will. And that is why the greatness of God's love and the greatness of God's gifts are so important. The solution for our issues is provided for us by a God who loves and gives And he did so in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness that he offers by virtue of his death and resurrection does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And how is this great love available to us? This great love is available to us because God gave his son. I have a question for you. Do you know how he gives? Church, to close, personally, I believe that there is a strong connection between how well we know God and our faith. So how well do you know him? You know, theology isn't cold. It's warm. And it's welcoming. It's inviting. It's invigorating. And if Christian beliefs make you unloving and cold, then you only you are doing something wrong. We should walk away from Christian theology, biblical teaching, with an excitement, with a passion, with a fervor, because this belief tells us that it's all been satisfied. Everything that we owe has been satisfied. If we place our faith in Jesus, then we know it. Not only here, but here. The next question is, how well do you know it? If we're living our lives as Christians and attending church on a regular basis, then incrementally we should see a significant difference between who we were and who we are. As we learn more about who God is and what he has done for us, we should see a significant difference between who we were and who we are, because there is a correlation between our faith and our knowledge. My question for you this morning is simply, how well do you know him? Do you know him well enough to get excited when we sing? Do you know him well enough to say no to sin? Do you know him well enough 
to live passionately and evangelistically? Do you know him well enough to encourage others? Do you know him well enough to pray and make intercession? Do you know him well enough to get out of bed in the morning? Do you know him well enough? And you fill in the blank. Because that's a question only you can answer.